welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I have Leonard DeVolio, who is probably the smartest person I've ever met when it comes to artificial intelligence. Yes, he's a Harvard professor and a PhD and uh, a bunch of other things, and well, I'll have him introduce some of his background here, but I heard him speak, it's gotta be a couple years ago now, at the Big Data and Machine Learning and Healthcare Conference, which was just the pre-conference to HIMSS, and he gave the opening, or the, the keynote speech at that, and opened my eyes as to some features of artificial intelligence that I just hadn't considered or thought about before. So I'm thrilled he's joining us. Hey, Len, thanks for joining us, and say hello if you would, and tell us a little bit about your background, a little bit more than I did, if you would, please. Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me on. I appreciate you dedicating a little bit of time to this topic. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so a little background. Well, I started as a software engineer, and I became... I guess I became disenchanted with uh, using software and all of its capabilities to increase the shareholder value of large banks or retailers, and I started to seek out applications and areas that I think would add a bit more meaning. Um, for me, that's healthcare. Uh, my, my whole family has backgrounds in healthcare, and so I got a PhD uh, in uh, what was called biomedical informatics out of UCLA. Uh, then went on to do a postdoc at Boston University and the Department of Veterans Affairs, spent another four years at the Department of Veterans Affairs helping to build out their genomic science infrastructure and jamming clinical trials into medical records and doing natural language processing and machine learning research. Then went on to join Atul Gawande and company at Ariadne Labs, built out their informatics team, helped with strategic partnerships, and um, finally I decided you know, there's just enough of this whole value-based care thing happening that people are going to have to start learning from their data in, in different ways. And, and as you know, Mark, a lot of the uses of data in healthcare today are to demonstrate compliance or to ensure reimbursement or for legal protection. Uh, but when you start to have to do more with less, you're suddenly like other companies and in other industries where you have to use your data to learn and improve and not just once a year, but on a daily basis. And that sort of kicks open the door for using advanced analytics, machine learning, natural language processing. And so I formed uh, a company called SIFT and I spend uh, most of my time now helping to make sure that companies that are trying to operate based under value-based contracts, whether fully capitated or or somewhat at risk, that they have the ability to use their data to get the right care to the right people at the right time at lower cost and, and faster and so on and so forth. So that, that's me, that's the, whole, that's the whole run up. How did you get into this field? Um, well, it's, it's so it depends on what part of this field. I mean, I, I knew that software was transformative. Just this idea that you could learn from and move information around in ways that we hadn't been able to do, and that was in the sort of mid-90s, late-90s, where the internet was starting to take over. Um, so I got into software because I was just, it just seemed like it was the future, and it really was an amazing capability to be able to, to learn and, and to improve at that clip. 
healthcare again because I thought, well, if we have this superpower, let's apply it to a field that matters a lot. And then, yeah, what we're calling artificial intelligence at the time, they were really just you know Java packages that uh, it was really machine learning and supervised machine learning, and it was a natural language processing, and it was a means to an end. I was. I was working with epidemiologists and health services researchers, and they had questions that simply couldn't be answered with queries and structured data and databases alone. And in order to figure out how to unlock more of that data and to discover patterns that weren't obvious, uh, these were the right tools for the job. And it, it just sort of snowballed from there. I think that resonates with a lot of the audience that you're speaking to today is they fell went into healthcare because they can apply their brain power to something that's worth worth doing. And I've always noticed that about about your your blogs or your LinkedIn messages or you, you definitely are connected to the healthcare field, which is really great. I do want to just kind of tell a quick story here. I saw a really great artificial intelligence solution that I thought would make life easier for our doctors. And I took it to uh, a chief medical officer. He, he's on the older side. And when I mentioned that there's this cool artificial intelligence thing, he got all nervous. He's no, he shot it down almost right out of the gate because artificial intelligence is scary, doesn't understand it. How can you help us understand AI so that it's not scary? Well, First, I don't blame that doctor, and that reaction to anything AI-related is not unique. I would say it's more commonplace. Maybe it's becoming a bit more comfortable. Um, you know, we have whoever started calling it AI uh, in their effort to get people excited about it probably made, you know, the first critical mistake. Um, th this notion that it is in some way artificial and at the same time intelligent and then coupling every reference to AI with a scary image of like a robotic arm delivering a pill, we've sort of created this incredibly misleading and intimidating um, imagery around uh, what is really just math that we learned how to automate. And so I mean, what happened here is we've had this math for 40, 50 years. I mean, the, really the foundation of the things we're doing today have been laid for a very long time. And there are thousands of articles, not just in the computer science literature, but today, any medical sub-discipline that you're a part of, you Google that sub-discipline and then add artificial intelligence or machine learning afterwards, and you'll get thousands of peer-reviewed studies that show that this math helps us find patterns in ways that we could not before. And so if we stop talking about it as though it's AI and, and robots versus doctors, and we start reframing it as math that lets us figure out who needs what level of care sooner or what is most likely to happen, um, if we think about it more like the way we're using uh, Google, way, Google Maps or Waze to just get where we're trying to go a little faster, which you know, those two applications are AI driven, um, then suddenly it becomes a capability and a capability that makes perfect sense to apply in the information science that is healthcare, where we're drowning in disparate heterogeneous data that could be unlocked to help us make better decisions. 
this is one of the tools that can help us get there. So answer this next question, thinking about it first maybe just as a practicing doctor and then take it to the CMIO level. What do we need to know about machine learning? Uh, do I have to know how to program this or just do I need to understand just the variables that go into it? What should I learn about if I want to brush up on my machine learning skills? So you have to understand what it, so if it's a capability, then you have to understand what is the superpower that that capability makes possible. And um, I think it's worth, I'll, I'll just frame it up. And if you think of it this way, it helps us to analyze. It helps us to predict. If you start to think about it in that way, then you can apply it to any of the problems that you're familiar with. And it's only useful in that it's applied to solving specific problems. So where might it help me to analyze what's going on. There, there's no shortage of applications where you have a lot of data and you're trying to understand what's really happening here. AI could be used as a tool along with the rest of your sort of business intelligence toolkit to help understand some of the outliers, some of the patterns that make the most sense. And if you can understand how AI is applied for analysis, then you can start to involve yourself with more confidence and competence ar around AI in sort of business applications, such as trying to figure out um, across a network of clinicians whether or not certain things are happening more or less than they should be. The other way AI is applied is for prediction. So we've now analyzed the, the landscape. We understand all of the roads that are available to us to get between points A and points B. We've discovered some of the outliers that are happening here. The next thing we might want to use AI to do is to understand what's likely to happen. And, and there, you don't, you don't need to be fluent in the math or the software. If you understand the data that's available to you and you can work with people that are better at the math, to understand how likely that data is to help you predict an event, whether it's an elderly person that's likely to fall. And then the, the obvious questions are, well, what data do we have? Claims? Well, that's not going to cut it. But if we have some in-home data, that gets us closer. And so it's, it's just a matter of understanding the capability, then applying it to solve existing problems, and then thinking through the, the limitations of the data or the math to get us there. The average community hospital, when they went live with their EMR, they, were, they probably developed a business intelligence unit. A couple of people who may very well have been nurses or something else before the, the big go live, the big excitement. And then they're, they're self-taught on a lot of this. And then someone says, gee, we, we need to have artificial intelligence. We, we really have to, we're falling behind our competitors here we should go out and hire a data scientist. So do you need a data scientist to play in the artificial intelligence space on your team? Which of this do you, and when it comes to algorithms, which do you buy and which do you build yourself? And if you would take us through if you're, hey, a community hospital versus something significantly bigger. So I think it's really hard to answer that question without starting. First, I think the wrong way to do this is to just hire a data scientist and then hope that that data scientist understands the problems that you have um, and then that that data scientist can figure out how to bridge the gap, which, and you know how hard this is, Mark, bridge the gap between 
what software can do and how to actually make it work inside of a hospital or a clinic. Mm -hmm. I think it's smarter instead to catalog the problems that you have. And I want to make this clear, the problems that you already have. The worst thing in the world is invest in people or software or tools to solve problems that aren't already at the top of your list. So it starts with what problems do we have? And if you're running around looking for problems, you know, for AI problems, I, I think again, you're, you're a hammer and everything's gonna look like a nail. So when, when we engage with organizations, even if they invite us in because they're curious about AI, the very first thing we encourage them to do, and we would prefer that they do it before we arrive, is to catalog their existing sort of C-level highest priorities. And some of those things may benefit from AI, but you don't ask, does it benefit from AI? You have to ask, so say for example, one of the problems that the hospital is having at the highest level, let's say that they've identified an opportunity to improve their um, end of life care or to improve their use of elective surgery, let's say total knee replacement, uh, because they got dinged for it or they see an opportunity to do more or do less of it. It doesn't make sense to talk about AI devoid of talking about solving that problem. So if the problem is, you know, we I think we're doing too many inappropriate total knee replacement surgeries. Um, our readmission rates related to that particular surgery are high. Uh, we're getting dinged on quality scores. Some of our patient satisfaction scores related to knee surgery are not looking good. Now you have a problem and now you can begin to think about what could we do uh, to analyze what's really happening and to predict what's likely to happen. Um, once you have the problems framed up in that way, then you can begin to understand whether or not better math makes sense for helping you understand the problem. A real, I want to make a, a really, there's a comment that, uh, that people overlook. The best artificial intelligence, the best machine learning produces suggestions and suggestions or recommendations are worthless if you don't have a team ready to pick it up and do something about it, which is why we say start with the existing high priority problem because the math, the AI is useless if you don't have the ability to intervene. And oftentimes arriving at that suggestion is easier than, than, than turning a team loose to try to affect change in some way. So let me hone in on that for just a sec. So I'm gonna, uh, let's make this a hypothetical uh, situation here. There's a group of case managers sitting out there waiting to jump on patients that, that are in need of services. And these are patients, the patients are in the hospital, they're gonna be coming out of the hospital and there's an algorithm that they can see that is gonna say whether this is someone who's at risk for coming back into the hospital. And this, the, the company that made this algorithm decided to be transparent and they, they've opened it up so that you can see the weights of things and which things the patient has and why they got flagged as being a medium or a high or a low risk. And then the case manager goes, gee, the things on that list, that's not why my patient is in trouble. They're in trouble because they're homeless and that's not in the electronic health record. So I don't trust the model. It doesn't know what it's talking about. I can't use it. Help me conquer that type of scenario. 
Yeah, so let's, so there's so many implicit assumptions in that scenario, Mark, that I want to uh -huh. unpack them a little bit. Sure. I think the last 30 years of information technology and healthcare have trained us to believe that the way to solve problems with information technology is to buy an algorithm or a package that already exists to then install it and then to hand it over to clinicians to do something with it. And that's implicit in what you just said. You bought an algorithm. Now, when you buy an algorithm, that algorithm is designed to work on the same data that everyone else has. Otherwise, that software vendor can't sell it to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. So there is another assumption. The assumption that whatever that basically claims data and maybe a limited amount of EMR data is all you need to predict something. The other imp implicit assumption there is that every patient population is exactly the same, that all risk or admissions are in some way average and can be predicted, and, and finally that, uh, that every intervention available to every clinical team is exactly the same. That is directly in line with every dashboard or, or uh, uh, EMR or anything else that we have installed in healthcare to date. And, and I want to tell you, other companies and other industries find it laughable that we would go ahead and buy an off-the-shelf product to figure out how to prioritize our very individual business or clinical needs. Amazon does not buy a third-party population book-selling tool and then install it. And that, so I think... That is a huge mindset shift. The power of machine learning is the ability to use all available data to then prioritize resources toward very specific purposes. And so the very specific purpose is not necessarily, I mean, this is the worst thing. We take this incredibly granular capability and then we apply it to a very limited set of data, because that's what we're used to, and then we try to predict the thing that actuaries told us we should predict 30 years ago, which is readmission risk. What if instead we use machine learning to its full capability, and we started by asking the team of clinicians that are responsible for helping the patients, what are the things that you can do to help them? And then we used not just a limited data set, but all available data to rank order their efforts toward the people not that are at the most risk or that are older or sicker or have the most readmissions in the last three months, but the people that are most likely to benefit from that very specific intervention. That's what Amazon and Walmart and Target and FedEx and, and everyone else is doing. They're, they're not installing AI to do the same thing that everyone else did. They're using all of their data as their competitive advantage, and they're applying AI inside their workflows to solve their problems. So let me make that real with just taking your analogy and, and taking it a step further. Um, at SIF, at, at the company that I formed, we get invited into scenarios just like that, and people think they want AI, but they want to apply it in exactly the same way that they've been using traditional analytics, the, the risk scores and, and dashboards. When we work in, for, for example, we work with a care management team and they said, you know, it's behavioral health that's causing a major problem for us. And people with behavioral health challenges are very different than just readmission risks. And the data that describes behavioral health challenges, that's mostly in the care management notes 
or the psychiatric notes or the clinical notes. And so what we do for them is we say, well, look, if first we calculate, well, how bad is that problem? Because I'm, sometimes perception doesn't marry up with reality. So first use the data to understand, well, how much is that costing you? How prevalent is that? Once you've established the fact that there is a real ROI, and by the way, that's what the CFO needs to see in order to hire you to do anything. Once the potential ROI is there, then you use all available data, not to find people that are going to be readmitted, but to find patients with serious mental illness that are most likely to have an inpatient psychiatric admission, not in the next 30 days, because when we talk to the team, they need more time than that, but the next 90 days. So is that level, that's pretty different than give me an AI risk score. Um, but I think it matters because it's, it's very understandable that when people have a new technology introduced, they want to apply it in the old way. And they're sort of missing the point. They're sort of selling short the investment by trying to take an old technology and, and make it work in old ways. The technologies are now coming packaged into the EMR. So when you turn on your EMR, there's these tools in there and you're expecting people to know how to use those tools. I think they're trying to use these things as prescriptive when they're really predictive and there is a difference and not everyone can appreciate that difference. Your interventions that you're going to do may not be directly related. Well, they're going to be somewhat related, but they're not going to be a direct cause and effect of what you see in the model all the time. So that's a struggle that I have found working with people with these models is they, they look and say that the, uh, you know, the, the, the patient had three readmissions in the last, uh, say, three months. Of course, this patient's going to be readmitted. But what you just said is so brilliant is that maybe that's not the person you should be putting your efforts on because you probably, you may not be able to stop that person from coming back in. Focus your limited resources on the things that matter. Did I sum that up? Is that an accurate statement? You've nailed it. And, and I think the big change in mindset is we should, if the goal is to find people most likely to benefit and, and you're intervening on people with different types of needs, we shouldn't start by assuming that whatever was packaged in the EMR is, is the, it's not the same as trying to find the people that benefit from what you do because those package solutions all assume that what we're really trying to do is find the people that have already utilized the most in the last three months. That is a different goal than find the elderly people that are most likely to benefit from uh, an early dementia screening or find the patients with serious mental illness whose condition is escalating or find the children with type 1 diabetes that are most likely to have a rise in A1C that should therefore be approached with some kind of phone-based or in-home-based intervention. That's the work that we do. That's the change in mindset that I think healthcare needs to adopt. Move away from the tool told me to do something. Move toward interdisciplinary teams that are focused on getting the right people in front of them based on what they're doing and who their population is and all available data. Not you know, a, another risk score that just uses claims, but now uses AI or social determinant data. That's, it's the idea that that's, 
there's a thing that was studied by researchers in the 70s and the 80s called the IT productivity paradox. And researchers figured out, man, now that we have this enterprise software, which was designed to make us more efficient, for some reason, when we adopt that enterprise software, we actually become less productive. What those researchers discovered was that's because we get this new capability and we try to use it in the old way and it takes us about 18 months and in some cases millions of dollars to figure out that the whole reason this new technology was attractive is that it allows us to do things in different ways, not to sort of go back to the, the old way of just getting another risk score and being frustrated by the fact that you know, it's, it's more of the same people that you knew about before AI came along. All right. So CMIOs get excited about the technology. We tend to be uh, technology uh, friendly. And we have to sometimes convince the CFO that we need to do things differently. Sometimes the CFO will see that the market is changing and move towards that value-based care. How does a CMIO approach a CFO what should we be highlighting when we start talking about, hey, we think we need some tools to help us solve this problem? Well, I think, I think the first thing any CMIO trying to sell this to a CFO, the, the first thing they should do is eliminate any reference to we need AI. Um, it is flashy and buzzy, but I, what we have learned is that Everyone is interested in AI. Nobody wants to buy it. People want to spend money on solutions to existing problems. So I would never move forward saying it's time to spend money on AI. Instead, I would say we have the potential to reduce readmission rates by 10% in the following 10 clinics. This set of technologies or this partnership will allow us to get to three times the number of correct people versus what we're currently doing. If I can improve the accuracy of my outreach by three times, and there's 100 people there, and I can re eliminate readmissions 20% of the time, then I can work that math backwards to justify the fact that spending X dollars on this tool allows me to have a five to one return on this existing problem that we already know the, the economics of. So it's, it's critically important, and, and we do a fair bit of this. When, if we're invited in to help, we'd, we would start first and foremost by understanding the economics of the existing problems and then working with the customer to understand, well, all, again, AI is a giant recommendation machine, but if this giant recommendation machine helps you get to the right people sooner, and you have confidence that what you're doing is making a difference to begin with, because I... I think this gets lost on folks too. If you have, for example, a care management team that is trying to prevent people from being admitted today, and you haven't taken the time to measure whether or not they're having an impact, it's really hard to then justify that finding more of the right people to do that same thing with will actually yield a positive return on investment. So a huge thing we help our customers do is start by measuring whether or not what you're already doing is making an impact. Because if it isn't, then finding more of the right people to do that thing with is, is not worth the investment. I don't think that's done a lot. I think we do a lot in medicine, but we don't always measure 
is that intervention that we are applying out there absolutely working or is it just a hunch? It feels like the right thing to do. I just get the feeling we do, we do too much of that when it comes to population health initiatives. Mark, I'll tell you quick. So we learned the hard way. I mean, what I just described to you, this idea of applying AI to improve care management, um, we do a lot of that. And we learned early on the importance of measuring whether or not that intervention is making a difference at all. Because here we are, the shiny new tool, and people will deploy us in the field. And we have shown mathematically, we can find more of the right people. Uh, 100%, 200% more of the right people. And it's not surprising, using more data and better math can help you predict events. The problem is, if you don't take the time to measure whether or not the thing the team is doing is having an impact, then at the end of the day, it'll look like AI didn't help. And it's true, it didn't. But is it really about whether or not the recommendation machine is broken, or is it, the intervention or is it the combination of the two so for self-preservation reasons you know uh, we had to learn how to measure what was actually happening in the field and now in all of our engagements we don't just use machine learning to find more of the right people we require that our partner also then work with us to measure what's happening so the ai finds the people but then based on the things the team says they're trying to improve we are producing on a monthly or weekly basis what we call progress reports, which is nothing sexy. It's really just reports, but it's reports that are not the mandated measures. It's weekly updates as to whether or not we're approaching the right people. Are we enrolling them? Are they engaged? Do we then deliver the intervention? How often? What dosage of intervention? And then we compare whether or not you're making a difference against a control group. If you don't do that, you can't really demonstrate that what you're doing is having an impact. And if you're in the value-based care business and you don't know whether or not the things you're doing are having an impact, it's really hard to, to exist for long, especially in capitated models. So measurement matters. So I want to give some real practical advice to the CMIOs that are out there, because I believe the math is the easy part, and I don't try to minimize what you do for a living. The harder part, which is I know you do this as well, is getting the adoption and the, the interventions going. That's the harder part. So without giving away your secret sauce, what practical advice can you give to CMIOs about launching one of these projects? Yeah, it's not secret sauce. I mean, I, I want as many people to learn from our mistakes uh, and, and our sort of lessons learned as possible. Um, and I've written about this a fair bit too. So if, if anybody, you know, there are longer efforts to try to help teams prepare to do this uh, off of um, the SIF blog and my LinkedIn uh, page. So, uh, but I'll try my best to give you a very brief answer. Number one, you start by cataloging the problem and the potential ROI of improving. The reason for that is if you don't have a five to one ROI problem, and we say five, five to one, five million dollars, five to one ROI. If you don't start by nailing a problem that either saves or makes five million dollars at an investment of one to, to then a five return, you're never going to be able to garner 
the forces you need to actually make change. That's, there's no AI involved in that, Mark, but mm -hmm. I, I, we will literally not engage with customers that aren't willing to spend the time to validate that with us or don't think that that's important because we're in this to change care. And as you said, changing care, changing workflow is incredibly expensive. We also warn our customers, the cheapest part of working with SIFT is paying SIFT because uh -huh. you're, you're about to have a team do something different. And that means many, particularly in distributed environments, you'll have many people doing things differently. So the five to one, $5 million ROI is critical. The second thing we've learned is clinicians, the, particularly the ones who own the problem or the, the area you're trying to improve, they are, they are not customers. They are members of the team from the beginning. So all of our communication uh, includes them. When we're working on models and getting data and we're valid, a big thing with machine learning is there's this perception that it's black box. It, it doesn't have to be. Some algorithms do tend to hide some of their machinations behind the scenes. There is no reason in the world that you can't run different algorithms that help you understand exactly what's happening. So we involve the clinical and the business owners in understanding what's happening uh, from the start. Um, then, and you can't have everyone on the project team, but then as you get closer to deployment, where we're doing a, a lighter version of the education of what is this really doing and why and why these people, we're then doing that with the care team that's going to be asked to, to go out there. And if we've done our job well, it's the clinical champion that was on the team from the start that's delivering that training and education to the rest of the team. And then the very last step is measure what matters to the team. And so I said that we have progress reports in all of our projects. We're developing those progress reports with the clinical team so that when we go live, now they're trained, they know why they're approaching these people for these reasons. It's based on their interventions. They know that they can affect the bottom line with an ROI, with reduced admissions. And finally, they're getting to see the progress in these really neat, clean reports, not of measures that were forced upon them, but of the measures that they believe will get them a better bottom line. That's, that's how we've learned to do it. And I would recommend whether you buy a tool or partner with a team, you should invest in every one of those aspects if, if you hope to do more than install a suggestion machine that intimidates and frustrates clinicians. I think that was really good practical advice. I love that. Tell us a little bit about SIFT, if you would, in terms of what's a project that you're excited about, if you're allowed to speak about it. What's something, uh, a, an area where you see that you're really having an impact? Sure. Um, well, uh, you know, very quickly, we're working in uh, helping, um, helping Medicaid plans reduce voluntary disenrollment by understanding who's likely to leave the plan and when and why, and then following up with the, with the customer service team's efforts. We're doing a lot of work in elderly populations. I'm really excited about our work in palliative care. Um, we're becoming, we do a lot in care management. And as I mentioned, our philosophy is there are specific interventions that make sense to do for certain people at certain times. And that has bridged us into uh, behavioral health care related work as well as better end-of-life care and that means having goals-based conversations earlier 
and making sure that patients get the care that they, um, that they wish for as they enter that stage of their life. But a project that I'll talk about in a bit more detail that I'm pretty fired up about right now, um, we are working with an orthopedic surgical hospital. Now, the orthopedic surgical hospital has been involved in a number of center of excellence bundled negotiations lately. They're a high volume, high quality center of excellence. And what they realized was these new value-based constructs, without any understanding of what is value, they're basically just volume slash price negotiations. And they believe that the quality of the knee replacement and back surgery that they do leads people to be healthier, the more healthy than their competition. So they wanted a way to understand, well, is that true? And if it is true, how can we do an even better job? And how can we demonstrate to payers that we are worth the prices that, that, we, that we think we need to demand? So right now in their clinics, when a patient goes and sits, well, they're in the waiting room, waiting for their initial consult with the surgeon, they're handed an iPad and they answer you know, about a minute and a half worth of questions. When they click submit on that iPad, back in the office, a piece of paper is printed out. On it is a personalized prediction, which basically assigns the likelihood that that patient, if they have knee replacement surgery, in one year, there is a 10% chance that they will have actually gotten worse, a 20% chance that they will stay the same, or a 70% chance that they'll get uh, meaningful improvement in their both pain and function. And so we took all of the data from the before and the after surgeries, we did the studies, we empirically validated it, we built this software, and so now patients and surgeons in this hospital before a surgery is conducted, they can sit down and talk about the likelihood that replacing their knee will actually put them in a better spot one year from now. And because we're following up six months, one year, two years later, it sort of creates this closed loop system. So the payers finally have the data that, that can be used to say, well, this is value. People are having better outcomes. They're doing less inappropriate surgeries. Patients are getting better in terms of pain and function. Uh, and the surgeons can now say, well, then you should probably pay us a, a better rate and send more volume our way because unlike our competition, we can prove that we're better and on the terms that matter most to us, not in terms of mandated third-party measures. So I, I'm, I'm super excited about that because this is the foundation of value-based care. This is the foundation of meaningful improvement. We've just been missing the data and the ability to predict to, to allow both sides, you know, all three sides, payers, patients, and surgeons to be able to sort of come together and have a, a meaningful conversation about how to actually improve. So what you're talking about is when data becomes a, a competitive advantage, a market differentiator between those who know how and can derive value from their data versus those who cannot. And now right now in the marketplace, I have not seen that because we're not enough into value-based care. We're still fairly heavy on the fee-for-service models in most markets. But as that change happens, I think it, most of us agree it will happen. I don't know when, but it will, that understanding and being able to use your data is a valuable tool. So I think you would agree with that, I would assume. Um, I, I think that when people talk about what is it going to take for AI to make a difference and they talk about 
it's black box and we don't have enough data and uh, the adoption curves. It all comes down to whether or not we really need to learn and improve. Because without the need to learn and improve, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of interventions that have been studied by health services researchers that sit on the shelves of medical libraries and never see the light of day because in a fee-for-service model, there is not incentive to learn and improve. So, you know, this company, I, I've been working in this field for 15 years. I can only now form SIFT as a for-profit sustainable entity because value-based care exists. But even then, I'm limited to, to what? 7% of, of the total healthcare delivery market. Uh -huh. So, so that's, that's everything. I mean, we, we even say that part of our mission is if you're taking on value-based care, our goal is to make you wildly successful so that your organization never looks back at fee-for-service. And if we can make your organization the shining light for other organizations in your market and beyond, then we can finally get more organizations to invest in learning and improving. Fantastic. I think we'll, we'll start to wrap up here. I just want to make sure I got those four key points that you had said earlier about the, the most practical use and knowledge that a CMIO would want to walk away from with this. They want to catalog the problem and the ROI. That's, that's step one. Step two is that clinicians are not customers. They are members of the team right from the beginning. And number three, then you have to communicate broadly to the rest of the team why you're doing this and what it is that we're going to be doing and what we hope to affect. And then the final step is to measure what matters to the team. And I imagine also give feedback to the team about how things are changing and improving to help reinforce. I imagine that would be part of it. Did I get the, the items right? You nailed it. You nailed it. If, if all you do is just cut that 30-second clip and distribute that as your podcast, you will have done a service, Mark. <laughs> awesome. So one last just final question. Is there a committee that sits somewhere that has decided that the uh, colors for artificial intelligence illustrations must be blue and black? Is that, is that like a default that everyone, and must include like the human brain in a robot's hand? Has that been decided officially? Yes. Yep, oh, there, is, there is the AI uh, imagery committee. They voted, <laughs> and it's not any blue, Mark. It's a, a slightly translucent blue. Uh -huh. And um, there has to be some kind of digital brain and or uh, a sort of a milky white-skinned plastic robot looking in the distance. <laughs> Fantastic. You've been great. Uh, if people wanted to get in touch with you, you're on LinkedIn. Is that the best way? Yeah, LinkedIn, or go to SIFT, and it's spelled C-Y-F-T, um, and it's all linked together there. Um, and, you know, I, I, I make this offer quite sincerely after all the talks that I give. Um, I, whether you want to work with SIFT or not, if you're just trying to make data work to improve healthcare, um, I've always been responsive to, to, you know, genuine inquiries about how can I make this work in my environment, whether it's like a SIFT engagement or not. So I would, I would encourage, I consider it part of my job. It's, maybe it's the reason uh, Harvard and the Brigham allow me to maintain my uh, academic appointment. But um, I, I just think this stuff is super important and I'm always happy to try to help people push the boulder up the hill a little bit faster. And to my colleagues, if you haven't seen some of his videos, they're on YouTube, 
they're, they're really, really good, including that keynote speech from, from Hims, uh, the pre-conference, and some of his other talks, so they're great. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. I look forward to bringing you our next episode.